If you can turn to Psalm 110, that is where we are this morning. This is where we were last week as well. Last week we focused on the the first part of the psalm, when uh, Yahweh spoke to David's Adonai and installed him as king. I don't know how in the world I'm still in Jonah, um, as opposed to Psalm 110. So we're going to look at the uh, the middle of this psalm today. Hear the word of our God. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the Scriptures, uh, may the Spirit open our eyes to behold the truth that is here. May He open our hearts that we might love the truth that we hear. May He open our minds to receive the truth that we discover here. Help us to see Jesus high and lifted up, not as one who is out of our reach, but as an exalted Savior who reaches down to us and lifts us to glorious delight. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I can remember as a child preparing for First Communion. Now, not First Communion. That was a different one. Penance, sorry. Got my my moments in childhood mixed up there a little bit. And uh, they had us practice if you can imagine that. Uh, practice this concept of uh, sitting down across from a priest, and this is not like you see in the movies where uh, the priest really can't see you because of this screen. This was face-to-face. And we are supposed to tell this man our sins. And when you're that young, it's really hard to think of your sins. I mean, there's the obvious. Well, you know, it's disobedient to mom and dad, and you know, I lied about being obedient to mom and dad, and those sorts of things. It wasn't until later, when I was a teenager, when I realized I really needed a priest. One whom I couldn't fool. One who knew everything that I did. One who would still embrace me despite that. I was not looking for a mere man with a collar, but rather one who could love me, a sinner. As David 
writes this psalm, I have a strong sense that that's part of what David is looking for. He was looking for a king that was greater than himself, but he's also looking for a priest that can help him because he knew the depths of his sin. Our big idea this morning is that our great high priest gives the gifts of righteousness and peace. We'll start with the reality of the messianic union and then we'll get to the gifts of righteousness and then the gift of peace. But our messianic king and messianic priest are united in this one person that we're, whose birth we are celebrating, Jesus. See, in this psalm we saw earlier how Yahweh spoke. And he spoke to this person that David says is my Lord, my, my Adonai, my, my master. And in that first verse, what he did is he exalted this person to his right hand. He speaks again. And he speaks again to the same person. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That what we get here is that the reality of an unchangeable decree. That what is going to be spoken is going to happen. No ifs, no ands, no buts. It is certain. We saw not too long ago in Jonah the reality that there are sometimes the, what we call intervening historical contingencies, where it looks like God changes his mind, but God's people repented from their sin, and so God does not bring the judgment that uh, he had declared against them. But what we see here is one of these things that will not change. It does not matter, because God is going to accomplish this by his great zeal and for his glory, and the thing that he is going to accomplish is you are a priest forever. Now remember, Jesus in his discussion with the scribes and Pharisees had pointed to this particular uh, psalm and said, that, of course, that it spoke about the Messiah. So we're understanding this. He is speaking about the Messiah, that the Messiah is a priest forever. He's not only a king, but he's also a priest. And now, this doesn't make sense for Israel. Because kings were from the line of David. They were from the house of Judah. It was, it was a hereditary sort of thing. And we recognize that Jesus was, in fact, of the line of Judah. But you can't be of the line of Judah and also be a priest because priests were from the line of Levi and more specifically the line of Aaron within Levi and ne'er the two shall meet. And so how is it that this messianic king can be both king and priest? This is not the only place it's mentioned. We see some places like Zechariah chapter 6, for instance. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts or armies, behold the man whose name is the branch. And we're going to see that phrase come up again a little bit from Jeremiah. For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build 
the temple of the Lord. Okay, remember, this is uh, post-exile. The restoration of God's temple was in mind here. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both, between the king, the branch, and the Lord of hosts. And so Zechariah foresees this time that when there will be a king and priest who sit upon the throne of David, a king who is going to build a temple. Still doesn't make sense. And here, David hears the, the ongoing conversation, or the declaration rather, of God, because he is a priest forever, specifically after the order of Melchizedek. And me, in other words, he's not a Jewish priest. He's not a Levitical priest. He's not a Aaronic priest. He is a priest after the line of Melchizedek, a greater and earlier order of priests. Because it was this priest that came to Abraham and blessed him. Indeed. A greater priest. And so we see that Melchizedek, who was both king and priest of God Most High, is a type of Christ, meaning he's a pattern for Christ, pointing to Christ, so that these two offices are joined together. And I cannot help when I think of this, but think of those old Reese's peanut butter cup commercials, where the two people walk into each other. One of them has chocolate, the other has peanut butter. I don't know about you, I don't walk around eating peanut butter, you know, out of a jar. But, you know, they they bump into each other, and the, the two great tastes that taste great together, right? Two great offices that work well together. United, not in a candy, but united in a person, a person of great dignity, of great substance, of great worth, a person of great majesty, a person of great glory, who has come to be a redeemer. Joined together. This Melchizedek of, of whom David, uh, or rather Yahweh speaks here in this Psalm of David, <clears throat> met, as I said, Abraham after Lot was rescued during a, after a great battle. He, he arrives on the scene, is declared to be priest of God most high, okay, um, and blesses him. And what is important for us to recognize when we hear, we talk about this idea of Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek, which we didn't know there was an order of Melchizedek until right here in Psalm 110, okay? Not a hereditary line of priests. Because Jesus is not descended from Melchizedek. It's not the way the Jewish priests functioned as a hereditary office. Now, there's this reality that we don't know who in the world Melchizedek is. Because unlike many of the other great figures within the Scriptures, there's no genealogy. There's no record from whence he came and who descended from him. That's probably 
important with this understanding of the reality of Christ as uh, or being in the order of Melchizedek. Many of the Jewish writers believe that he was actually Shem, one of the three sons of Noah, who, if you do the math, was still alive during the, the life of Abraham, who in fact outlived Abraham. Martin Luther agreed with this view of uh, the identity of Melchizedek. Uh, the um, semi-notorious uh, early theologian Origen, not such a good guy, he thought it was an angel. Okay, um, Ambrose, for those of you who are familiar with Ambrose, he was the Bishop of Milan uh, that... Augustine listened to, and so he was key in the conversion of Augustine out of paganism and into Christianity, and he thought that this was a uh, pre-incarnate Jesus. I'm going to throw my money down with John Calvin, who says that Melchizedek was a Gentile man, one of the few at that point who still retained the truth. In other words, he is a priest of God Most High, similar to Jethro. He was one of the few believing Gentiles that still existed after the flood, a number that was decreasing and would decrease even further with God narrowing things down to the line of Abraham for a time. He was like Job. It's Job. Whole book in the Bible. He's not Jewish. He was a Gentile. But he called upon the Lord. He recognized this God. And so, uh, most likely, Melchizedek is someone who worshipped the one true God, even though he was a Gentile. And so we see these three little verses in Genesis 14, and this one important verse in Psalm 110, and that's it in the Old Testament. Four verses. You wouldn't think that he would be He's even remotely important on the basis of four verses. And yet, what we see in Hebrews is that the author of Hebrews spends three chapters talking about Jesus and Melchizedek. Pretty important in all of this to understanding the priesthood of Jesus. And so we see that Jesus as Messiah is our king, but is also our great high priest who in fact builds a living temple. Remember that Zechariah thing I talked about a few moments ago? He's going to build a temple. It's not an earthly temple, not a temple made of stone, but it is a living temple of living stones, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, as well as 1 Peter chapter 2. And so as Messiah, Jesus serves as both our king and our priest forever. Okay, what does that mean? First thing that it means is, Jesus, the great high priest, gives the gift of righteousness. Okay? Melchizedek is, uh, you know, one of those compound words. It's not German. It's Hebrew, and they sometimes do the same thing. Uh, one of my friends who's in Germany just posted a picture the other day, and I think this word, that's what the Germans do. They just keep adding words to words to make bigger words. Instead of a sentence, it's just this humongous word. And it was like, 
this Christmas supply store and this word had to have been 40 letters long. It was ridiculous. Uh, so this word is combined from Malak, king, and Zedek, righteousness, and it means king of righteousness, as we see in Hebrews chapter 7. Okay? In case we, in case we were uncertain as to what exactly it meant, Hebrews 7 tells us exactly what it means, king of righteousness, or rather, a king who is characterized by righteousness. And not all kings are, as you might imagine. We see this in Jeremiah 23, as well as Jeremiah 33, a king who is righteous, but also using that phrase, or that word, branch. In 23, starting in verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for, for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, when you go home, I want you to to pull that up and look at it. And I also want you to pull up the passage in Jeremiah 33, starting in verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, or for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. Note all the similarities between these two passages. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. And so, Jeremiah is foreseeing this time, prophesying this time, when the branch will arise and the branch will be so righteous that His name will be, The Lord is Our Righteousness. Jesus the Messiah, who comes in the order of Melchizedek, is righteous. His thoughts, his words, and his deeds conform perfectly to God's law. Yours and mine, not so much. His, perfectly. There's no deviation at all. No want of of, uh, conformity whatsoever with God's law, not just in his deeds, but also in his thoughts and his words. Altogether, thoroughly righteous. You see, David as a king, as he, as well as a prophet, as he watches all this and hears all of this in the heavenly council, but can only think about the fact that he was guilty of various sins. He was guilty in his affair with Bathsheba. He was guilty in ordering the death of Uriah in battle. He was guilty of ordering a census so that he might rely upon the strength of his army instead of the Lord himself. There's a sense in which David should be rejected as king. Because David's a criminal. And not only that, he overlooked the sin of his son Absalom, 
who should have been put to death as a murderer. Actually, he also should have noticed the sin of his other son and put him to death before Absalom decided to take matters into his own hand as a vigilante as opposed to having it done in a just way. We are all like Veruca Salt. If you cannot remember who Veruca Salt is, she was the rich young girl in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory who wanted everything and wanted it now. And the thing she wanted most at that moment, because it always changed, was the goose or one of the geese that laid golden eggs. And her father was ready to write the check, and she sings the little song. And right before that, they talk about how each egg is placed upon um, what they call, what Willy Wonka called the educator. Okay, good, bad, good, bad, and the bad ones went to the furnace. And Veruca, at the end of her song, the climax of her song, jumps up upon the educator as if she is righteous and good. And it goes, bad. And the door opens beneath her feet, and she plunges to the furnace. That is you, that is me, in terms of what we deserve, because we lack righteousness. We deserve justice. And you see, a perfectly righteous king like Jesus will, in fact, execute perfect justice against sinners like David and ourselves. You see, the the Aaronic priests were not perfectly righteous. One of the things we see from Leviticus as well as from Exodus is that before they offered sins for the people, they had to offer uh, sorry, before they offered sacrifices for the sins of the people, they had to offer, offer sacrifices for their own sins. Okay? Jesus is the only priest who did not need to offer atonement for his own sins. Jesus died not for his own transgressions, but he died for our transgressions. But not only that, we see that as our substitute, He obeyed the law on our behalf, that righteousness that He accomplished in His earthly nature, in His role as Messiah, was for us. So that He can have a righteousness to give to us as a gift. And so we see in Romans 4 how often it is said that His righteousness is credited to us, those who believe, to clarify the us. What does the Scripture say? Of course, Paul goes back to Abraham, Genesis 15 Abraham believed God and it was counted or reckoned or imputed to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Get the... 
the reality of that. That thing that, that Rome really has trouble with. God who, who is righteous but justifies the ungodly. The ungodly who believe in Christ. And he, and Christ then gives them this gift of his righteousness so that God in fact declares them to be righteous. We see this as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. And so one of the gifts of Christmas is that we receive a righteousness that is not our own, but is perfectly able to stand up under the gaze of God, and if it's placed upon the educator, says good. So, if you're struggling with failure, some of you just got back from exams. I don't know how those exams went, but maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at home. Maybe you've failed your spouse, your parents, your children. This happens. If you're struggling with failure, with shame, with guilt, what are we to do? We are to confess this need that we have to God and God alone. We don't need to go to an earthly priest. We go to Jesus and confess it. We receive His righteousness by faith, and we begin to unpack that gift of righteousness with with respect to that place where we've broken the law. If we're a child and we've disobeyed our parents, we know that Jesus perfectly obeyed His parents for us. If we failed at work, Jesus worked as a carpenter perfectly for us. No matter what it is, Jesus has done it perfectly for us. And so we have to remember that and stand in that righteousness of His, remembering that it is only His righteousness that makes us stand and acceptable in the presence of God. And that's what I mean by unpacking it. Walking in that instead of just being, you know, yeah, I get His righteousness. No. I'm able to walk before God because I have His righteousness. That my failure is not standing between me and God anymore. My sin no longer stands in the way, but I'm able to approach the throne with boldness and confidence, not because of how good I am, but because of the goodness of Jesus given to me. And so our righteous priest gives His righteousness to all who place their faith in Him. Thirdly, the second gift. Jesus, the great high priest, gives the gift of peace. See, we, we do tend to think of priests making sacrifices, particularly the sacrifices for sin, and we got a whole book that's full of them in Leviticus. Okay? Atonement is intended to restore the peace that sin breaks. If you think about it in terms of personal relationships, uh, when your friend sins against you or you sin against your friend, the peace is broken. There's something that comes between you. 
there's a little bit of anger and animosity that exists there. Something has to remove that. And so the priests of Israel were intended to make sacrifices of atonement that would remove or satisfy the wrath and restore peace in their relationship with God and their relationship with one another. And so we see here that Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, is also declared in Genesis as well as Hebrews to be the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. Melchizedek, the king priest, is characterized by not just righteousness, but also peace. That's sort of interesting in the sense that he didn't go to war with Abraham. He sort of comes after all of this. But he's characterized by shalom, peace. And so Jesus as well is characterized by shalom or peace. See, David longed for a priest who would remove his guilt and restore peace, rather, restore peace again with God, but also peace with his people, his family. A family that was twisted and torn asunder because of sin. David longed for restoration, for peace. And what happened is that God provided one. He provided a a priest who could do this in his own son, Jesus. You see, part of the problem is that we often minimize the reality of sin, especially our sin. We, of course, maximize the reality of other people's sin. So, you know, actually Jack might agree if I called him the chief of sinners. Jack might agree. Depends on the day, maybe. (laughs) Jack's lived long enough to know he really needs Jesus every day. Okay. But sometimes we don't have that. We think that we're mostly okay. And maybe we need just a little bit of help. We think of our sin as not very serious. There's nothing important to see here. Move along, little doggy. Okay? But Scripture tells us, both in the sacrifices in the Old Testament, but also in that succinct sentence in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. Not a time out. Not a slap on the hand. Not a fine. I was driving the Phoenix early this morning. You, were, you would be amazed at the number of those uh, signs talking this weekend about speeding. It was all had to do with uh, he sees you when you're speeding. <laughs> stuff, stuff like that. It was really bad. I wanted to speed, get away. Um, the wages of sin is death. In his great book, Curdeus Homo, Anselm says this to his foil, Bozo. Um, didn't have the same connotation as it does to us because of the, the clown. You have not as yet 
underestimated the great burden of sin. You see, Bozo was not sure why there had to be a redeemer who would come and who would die. Why the God-man is the name of the book in English. And Anselm responds, you don't yet understand how great a burden sin is. That's why you can't realize why there needs to be the God-man. You see, the priests uh, of the Aaronic priesthood offered frequent sacrifices. They offered the blood of bulls and goats. And one of the things that the author of Hebrews declares is that the the blood of bulls and goats does not take away guilt. It was merely provisional and typological pointing to the reality of one who would come who would really bear our guilt and really remove our shame. Jesus is superior. You see, His one sacrifice removes all the sins that His people commit. He did not offer a better bull. He offered Himself. The only way to make this crooked world straight was for the Creator to become man that He might die for its transgressions. That is the burden of sin. And so it is Jesus restores peace through His sacrifice, through His atonement. Hebrews 7 once again notes for us, Now if perfection had been obtainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And so he's saying the whole reason there needed to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek is that the priest in the order of Aaron couldn't do it. They weren't meant to. They were only meant to point to Jesus. So we see later in Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And so not only did this Jesus die for us, but He also was raised for us and now intercedes for us. I got ahead of myself. This happens. We see this as well in Hebrews 7. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. This Jesus who died is the Jesus who lives and the Jesus who continues to intercede as our priest. And so it is in this way that He Himself is our peace. He's able to intercede because He pleads on the basis of 
His sacrifice. That sacrifice, that one unrepeated sacrifice that covers the multitude of death-deserving sins and trespasses that we have committed. That one unrepeatable sacrifice which creates an unbreakable peace with God as part of this better covenant that has been written in His blood. And so we see in many ways, Jesus is superior. Jesus lives in this unending priesthood. There's no one who has to come and take His place because He's died. He is forever a priest, as we see in Psalm 110. A priest in the order of Melchizedek. Do you suffer from broken relationships? Most of you would probably say yes. There's nothing like the holiday season to bring that out. The people you can't invite over. The people who don't want to come over. The relationships that sin has severed or sin has made so uncomfortable that you'd rather just not deal with it. Or perhaps it's the their sin and you're longing to be restored and they have no desire to be restored. One of my best friends couldn't talk to me this week. This will come up in Luke 15, but his daughter essentially ran away. She turned 18. She said, hasta la vista. I don't want any of you. And when I called him this week to see how he was doing, knowing that this would be a, a difficult season, she was there. She was picking up a few things. And so he said, I've got I've to help her with something. I'll call you back. And then later he texted me and said, I can't talk without crying. Because his daughter's heart was so hard. And where she should be home for the holidays, she's fleeing for the holidays. That's what I'm talking about. We need to confess that reality, that great need that we have, that we can't fix our relationships. There must be someone greater who comes in to fix these relationships, and that greater person is Jesus, and receive the peace that He offers as a gift, and then unpack it. I've usually talked about it in terms of that gospel waltz. All I'm talking about now just in terms of unpacking that one and walking in that peace that you have received from Christ. So that you can say, you might have a hard heart, but I don't have a hard heart toward you. I want to be restored to you. Will you take a chance on being restored? You see, David's vision of the Messiah includes not only a king, but also a priest. And how can a Davidic king be a priest? Because he's in the order of Melchizedek, according to David and the author of Hebrews. 
This king priest is characterized by righteousness and peace. And to embrace Christ by faith is to receive not only Christ himself, but also these gifts of righteousness and peace that are part of him. So that accepted by God and one another, we are despite our ongoing failures and sins. That is what Christmas is about. Let us pray. Father, we are all too familiar with guilt and broken relationships. The way that sin has disrupted our relationship with you and disrupts our relationships with family and friends. Help us to own up to this. Help us to see our great need for a great high priest who offers the gifts of righteousness and peace. And may we receive them with joy as perfectly suitable to us. May we grow in our understanding and our experience of Christ's righteousness and peace. And may we offer these gifts to others who know the pain of sin and alienation. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our righteousness and peace forever. Amen.